Hello, everyone. I'm Harpreet Singh, welcoming you to the Future Work Pioneers podcast. Today, we are speaking with Jeff Ward, the founder of Work Market. Jeff has founded several other technology companies, including Spinback, a social sharing platform that was eventually acquired by Salesforce.com. He's an active angel investor and startup advisor. Jeff is also the author of the Amazon bestseller, The End of Jobs, The Rise of On-Demand Workers, and Agile Corporations. Jeff holds an MBA from Harvard Business School and an MS and BS from Cornell University. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for that wonderful intro. It's almost like I wrote it myself. So uh, let's start with work market. I, you know, we, we've heard a lot about uh, the the company uh, has been around since 2010. Mm-hmm. Tell us about its genesis and the evolution it's gone through over the last decade. You know, its genesis had two kind of predicates. One was a paper written in 1937 by Professor Ronald Coase called The Nature of the Firm, where this Nobel laureate theorized about why we have these things called corporations and what's their ideal structure. And Harpreet, he he talked a lot about the ideal company is a large fixed cost entity because the transaction costs for spinning up on-demand labor were too high to onboard people, offboard people, to capture the data, contracting, and all these other things. I remember reading that paper in business school and thinking, well, I appreciate that was true in 1937, but hasn't technology massively reduced these transaction costs and reduced that friction? And so I started thinking about that, and then I was reminded of my business school thoughts a few years later when McKinsey wrote a paper uh, talking about on-demand labor and how companies lack the systems and processes to engage on-demand labor at scale. And if they had those systems and processes, the one trillion in on-demand labor might become three to four trillion. And you know, as entrepreneurs, we try to solve big problems. And anytime you can use the T word, the trillion word, you know you're onto a big problem. And so that led to the first business plan, which a couple of years later became became Work Market. And we were fortunate enough over Work Market's life to raise about 100 million in venture from Union Square Ventures, SoftBank. And uh, in 2018, we were fortunate enough to sell the company to ADP. And uh, you know, now Work Market's journey is a part of the ADP family. And a lot of people view ADP as a payroll company, which it certainly is by far the world's largest payroll company, but they're also the world's largest HCM software provider. And so our friends at ADP shared a vision of what I'll call total talent management, the idea of managing all of your labor resources in one system. And Work Market was uh, their solution for the on-demand labor force. And so we are our journey now is tied into ADP systems and bringing total talent management to companies all over the world. Wonderful. So fractional talent in the world I operate in with Xprovise, data science talent means someone that works like 20 hours a week. In the context of work market, gigs even have a shorter duration. Uh, so what, what do you think are the advantages and disadvantages of talent that is needed on a transactional basis in an Uber-like fashion? Well, Let's start with the advantages to the company, right? If I'm a company for certain 
job functions for certain projects within those job functions, it makes more sense to bring in the subject matter expert that doesn't need to be trained, that has a specific expertise or a specific availability or specific geographic coverage that can perform a task for you much quicker, much more efficiently than a full-time employee either being flown into zone or waiting for availability or being upskilled or things like that. And so it allows company this powerful word, flexibility, right? And we all know any system that has flexibility is a more robust system. And that applies certainly for companies. The more flexible they can make their cost structure, because most companies, their largest cost far and away are people. And those, pe those people are predominantly a fixed cost. Getting rid of them takes time. Adding them takes time. The on-demand labor is able to be spun up and spun down in a moment's notice. And so that flexibility, that access to expertise and availability and geographic and skills, uh, those are things that add a lot of value to the company. For the worker, that same amount of flexibility applies. That ability to choose when you work and how you work, that ability to focus your skill set on a specific domain expertise, all those things are why we see a 80% satisfaction rate in the on-demand workforce. And when I say satisfaction rate, by the way, the word, the question being asked in these surveys is, would you take a full-time job if it were offered? And the answer is no. Uh, that's very interesting. So, so the uh, flexibility being one thing, um, uh, what, what about um, when we think about these marketplaces, uh, you know, so some of them are providing longer duration talent some are providing you know on-demand um, transactional talent mm -hmm. so in in those two scenarios um, do you see one being easier like i i always you know i, I guess the grass is greener on the other side so I, we uh, you know xprofi the company i run provides more of a longer term mm -hmm. uh, on-demand talent so i always thought that you know if we were in the business of shorter term talent, then I could use an algorithm like Uber and like match people on demand without having to wet them or without having to, uh, you know, do other things that are necessary. What, what is your perspective? This is a very wide ranging question because I can think about it in a number of ways. And look, what is most effective as companies in our space? Do we want to think of ourselves as the upworks of the world? which are very transactional, very short term, but every single day Upwork wakes up and has no customers and they have to go every single day and get new customers. Upwork works worries about the disintermediation every day. Where, all right, I find a developer, but my next project, I'll just email the developer and send them money through PayPal. And so there are advantages and disadvantages to the gig or to the marketplace context. There are advantages and disadvantages to the tenor of that engagement. The shorter term engagement does lead to more algorithmic interactions and fewer customer service calls, but they're very short term and you got to get them each time. The longer term engagement or higher touch, but that person could be you know, working with that company for two or three years and you're making the vig on that. And then you have the platforms, companies like WorkMarket, which you know, I called the company WorkMarket. So it implies a marketplace, but that was mistake number one of the 10,000 mistakes I made while building WorkMarket. Um, we are enterprise software that enables a process 
right? So we will go in and companies mostly bring their own labor to work market in private environments, and they use our tools to organize, manage, and pay that freelance workforce efficiently and compliantly. And in the VMS space, you have companies like Field Glass and IQ Navigator, Beeline, and all these other things. And so when I look at these three different buckets, you actually see more value being created at the higher end of those gig marketplaces. So Upwork is worth, what, three, $4 billion in the public market? Obviously, Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and Postmates are worth tens of billions of dollars. We have the software platforms that have sold for hundreds of millions, upwards of a billion and change in kind of the work market and field glasses and IQ navigators of the world. Um, and the story has yet to be told. We haven't seen a lot of exits yet. Mm-hmm. And so as I sat there thinking about work market inside ADP's confines, which was a wonderful place to be, it's very warm and cozy inside the confines of ADP, not having to worry every day about where you're going to make payroll next week. Um, I will say I started to push us unsuccessfully, but I started to push us down the marketplace route because you know, our friends at Upwork are doing hundreds of millions in revenue. And none of the software platforms are making hundreds of millions in revenue. Our friends at Fieldglass, uh, which sold for a billion two, a billion four, somewhere around there, to SAP, they were doing about 80 million in revenue at the time. I'm sure they're over 100 million now, but Upwork's just done better. Fiverr's done better. Freelancer has done better, right? They're doing 100 million plus in revenue, and you can't find many companies in the space doing that. And by the way, it's not just that's not gross marketplace value, that is actual software type revenue with a very high margin. So you, you just don't see that. So you, you're, you're saying that up, um, the, the uh, Upwork is doing uh, three, four billion in, in, in the, the net. Or is that the so I, I don't know what their gross marketplace value is. I'm just going off of, you know, their gap revenue and they don't. So, you know, there's that traditional staffing for a model where staffing firms say, oh, we do 100 billion in revenue. I'm like, yeah, but you only generate like 2 million in profit because that 100 billion revenue is the payroll of the person that goes and does the job. So at work market, we process a billion dollars worth of labor, but our revenue is not a billion dollars. We could have called it that. But then we'd have a tiny, 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 tiny gross margin versus, and I, you know, I'm not authorized to reveal what work market revenue is, but its revenue has a 90% gross margin because it is just the revenue we earn. So Upwork is earning hundreds of millions in revenue off of the multiple billions that they are processing each year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very interesting. So, so for fledgling talent marketplaces that are starting out. Uh, what is a, a good go-to-market strategy? You know, you having done this uh, for a long time. So um, is integration into VMSs and HR systems something that gives them a jump start, Or uh, how do they think about partnership alliances? You know, how, how do they get started? Well, first, I think we need to divide ourselves because there are certain industries where there are supply and demand imbalances one way versus the other. If you have a supply and demand imbalance where there are so few workers, then I would say the best go-to-market is to aggregate workers. Because if you have the workers, people will knock your door down to come and find them. And I'll, I'll do a quick tangent here with an anecdote. Look, I'll tell you, every single sales pitch at work market started with something like this. With me walking in, the CEO would say, hey, super excited. Quick question before we even get started. How many plumbers do you have in Cleveland? And I would say, okay, 
let me just stop you right there. Assume we have zero plumbers in Cleveland. That is not what the company is. We are enterprise software and blah, 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 blah. And he would say, okay. And then we do the hour long song and dance. And at the end of the meeting, the CEO would say, you know what? I get it. I totally get it. You use all these limit functions and labor clouds and it's efficient and it's compliant and it keeps my people safe and blah, 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 blah. This is amazing. Really, really appreciate it. One last question though before you go, Jeff. How many plumbers do you have in Cleveland though? Because we really need plumbers in Cleveland. And the thing is, is after hearing that four or five times, I'm the stupid one in the room, right? I should build what they want. The point being for an area like plumbers, there's a huge supply and demand imbalance. There are not enough plumbers in the United States. We are short tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of plumbers. And so if you have them, people will come to you. And so if you're in a market with that supply and demand imbalance, aggregate supply. If you are not, then you need to build the tools to be able to efficiently organize demand. Because if you have enough demand going, then supply will come and find you because you have the jobs and there are are plenty of people looking for jobs. So I always think about things like that, but let me address the, should you integrate with a VMS? I saw this trend a lot where the VMSs were saying, look, we aggregate staffing firms and these marketplaces are just online staffing firms. I don't know how that trend has played out. I will tell you that uh, in my history, I've had a lot of partnerships with VMS and they have led to exactly zero. They've led to wonderful relationships. I will tell you, Doug Levy, who is the CEO of uh, IQN Beeline or Beeline IQN, whatever they call it, he's one of my favorite people in the industry. But he and I haven't done a deal together. We haven't gotten revenue done together. I just, I just love him because I think he's one of the smartest guys in the industry. I think he's one of the nicest people in the industry. I just happen to really, really like that guy. But we didn't get anything done. We had partnerships, you know, everywhere. And so I'm not sure how it's going to play out. It makes sense, but uh, I'm wary of it. This episode is brought to you by Experfy. Incubated in Harvard Innovation Lab, Experfy provides custom future of work solutions, such as private talent clouds and skill taxonomies. Experfy differentiates itself by using subject matter experts to pre-vet and pipeline candidates for AI and high-end technology skills. However, Experfy Talent Cloud Platform is skill agnostic and can be licensed to build custom talent clouds for any and all skills. In a different use case, enterprises interested in employee intermobility can license the Experfy platform to create an internal gigs marketplace where interested employees can be algorithmically matched to projects, gamifying their learning experience. Visit www.expertify.com for more information. So you, you've touched upon uh, compliance. Uh, so with worker classification lawsuits on the rise, compliance becomes an imperative uh, for talent platforms. So what do these platforms need to do uh, to become enterprise ready? Whew. That is a great, 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 great question. And I think it is a powerful question as you think about the marketplaces having to become enterprise ready. Look, the first thing I would say on enterprise ready is SOC 2s and GDPR. Those to me are gating items. Whether or not you have the tools in your platform to enable risk mitigation from a compliance standpoint, I think is kind of a nice to have, but 
there are a bunch of other things like user roles and permissionings and approval flows that I think are, are, are table stakes. Like you won't be able to get in the door if you can't, you know, create an administrator role and the administrator can stop payments and allow for double approval before payments go out the door and things like that. And those are things, quite frankly, that work market did incredibly, incredibly well. And that was one of the reasons ADP bought us is they looked at other platforms and they said, nobody else here is enterprise grade. You guys have your SOC 2, you've done all their GDPR work, you have the user roles, you have the permissionings, you have the internal controls, and they knew their clients would require that. Like you couldn't even get in the door. But to your question on compliance, specifically in misclassification, this stuff is super tricky. Here's what clients want. They want an indemnification. They want you to say, we'll handle this. And as a software firm, you want nothing to do with that. You don't want to give that indemnification. Now, as a startup, we did give that indemnification a bunch of times. And when ADP bought us, they were like, whoa, 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 what are these contracts? We're getting out of these contracts ASAP because we can't have that indemnification. I was like, yeah, look, I did what I had to do to sign contracts. And so, you know, I would actually say if you're a startup, you should give that indemnification and just move on because the risks are actually so incredibly small. But the benefit to the company of getting that indemnification is so high. Right, so the odds of it actually coming and biting you in the butt later are very, very, very low. And so I would be willing to give it or I'd be willing to outsource it because companies are certainly willing to pay for it. And our friends at MBO Partners are, I think, the best in the business at this indemnification. But you, so there are certainly other partners out there. Uh, but third, and this is the route that WorkMarket does take, is to build the software to let the company decide where they want those lines to be. Here's what I mean by that. You may say, I don't want to engage anybody more than 52 assignments per year, which is the new Prop 22 um, provisions within California, or AB5, I should say, and then Prop 22 changes it, but some of those provisions within AB5 still stand. And so, okay, in, and that is specifically within content creation. No more than 52 assignments per year, <clears throat> obviously one per week. If you don't have the ability to set a limit function such that it's a metaphysical impossibility for someone to get that 53rd assignment, are you helping with their compliance? No, just running a report doesn't do anything. They can run reports now. If you wanna set dollar thresholds, if you wanna set percentage of work thresholds, and, and there's a very long list of things that you can do from a limit function standpoint and from a host of other coding standpoints, to create the type of what we would call a compliance engine to do that. So when a new work market customer comes on board, they sit with the implementation teams and they're moving a bunch of sliders back and forth. What percentage of the person's revenue are you comfortable being? Oh, you don't care? Great. Oh, you don't want to be more than 10% of that person's revenue because therefore you can make the case that they are not economically dependent upon you, which is one of the key provisions. Great. Let's set it at 10%. Forget it. If a person goes to take an assignment that'll put over that 10%, they'll be blocked. Can't do it. Oh, you don't want to work with people that cross state lines. You don't want to be more than X number of dollars that a person earns. Okay, great. We can set those things up. Those are very, very powerful tools and things that people should be thinking about in the uh, marketplace or platform world as you go enterprise. So as uh, these talent platforms proliferate, uh, what do you see as the future of staffing firms? Uh, how, how do they reinvent themselves? 
I don't know. I just don't. I will tell you this. During our time at Work Market, I had the pleasure of meeting with the CEOs of every major staffing firm in the world, quite frankly. And the meetings always kind of went like this. Uh, Jeff, it's nice to meet you. Are you my friend or are you my enemy? I was like, whoa, I'm your friend. If anyone ever asks you your question, by the way, are you my friend or you my enemy? You always say friend. What, what do you say? My enemy? Of course not. So no, no, no. We're your friend. And the staffing firms are some of Work Market's largest clients. And they're great clients because, you know, a firm like Adeco could have 10 instances of work market. They don't just buy one instance. They buy the Adeco instance to work for ABC Corp, the Adeco instance to work for XYZ Corp. And so they're a great channel and, and not even a channel. They're just a great customer base because work market's not an online staffing firm, right? We're software to help companies manage their own processes compliantly and efficiently. And so if I'm a marketplace, I should view myself as an online staffing firm, a self-served online staffing firm, ideally, right? Where clients have all the tools to do things on their own. And the staffing firm should 100% view those as a competitive threat. They are in the midst now of trying to tech enable their businesses to say, hey, we're, we've got the same stuff as XYZ, you know, as this startup and that startup. Um, and so I think it's going to be an interesting clash between the nimble startups that are able to do things quickly and build better tech and the company massive, massive on, uh, global staffing firms that have huge amounts of resources and are buying things. We see our friends at Adeco buying Vettery and Hired and a bunch of other platforms. Um, there are some important, important trends there. And I think that uh, you can certainly look to staffing firms buying a lot more marketplaces as time goes on, is my guess. Switching gears, um, your book, uh, The End of Jobs, t- tell us uh, what inspired you to write it. Uh, frustration. Frustration inspired me to write it, Harpreet. I you know, had the pleasure of being at a lot of conferences. And I would be on stage and on panels and I'd hear other presenters or my fellow panelists. And I would just be like, what is this person saying? That has a 0% chance of coming true. Like, does this person understand anything about labor? Have they read any of the statistics? Do they know anything about history? And I I get very frustrated when people speak in a public square without evidence. And that goes for all aspects of life, but specifically in this world where I've spent 10 plus years, And I would say that we have this tremendous body of evidence of the history of work, the data in the world of work, and how companies actually engage workers. And if you look at those three things, and if you study them, you have a capability of producing high probability predictions. If you don't think about any of those things, you're just basically rolling the dice. You have the chance, you have a high probability being heard because you're probably going to say something very provocative, but you have a very low probability of being correct. And that bothers me. And so I don't like when people just like to be heard to be heard. I like when they like to be heard because they have something very intelligent and thoughtful to say. And so I wrote a book to lay out a framework of history, data, and how companies actually engage workers as a lens through which we should make predictions in the world of work. Because people tend to make very simplistic, very broad predictions that have a very low probability of coming true. The world of work is complex and it moves very slowly. So, so what, what are the main arguments of the book? 
The main arguments of the book are be wary of predictions that have data anomalic patterns. So the on-demand labor force has slowly moved for 1% or 2%, sometimes way less, per year in its growth. Well, now we're going to predict it doubles. It's going to go from 25% to 50%. It's moved from 22% to 25% over a 10-year period. Now we're going to predict it doubles. So be wary of predictions. Be wary of simplistic conclusions around technology's impact on jobs. People like to say, oh, this new tech exists, therefore all these jobs are going to go. And that is not how things play out in the scope of history. And be wary of the broad brush, because any analysis of labor force transformation needs to be done industry by industry, job function by job function. And it's complex, and it takes a long time. And so the main message of the book is, is be wary. And in, in the book, you talk about uh, the fourth industrial revolution with AI and robotics. Uh, mm-hmm. So what does the future of work look like from your perspective? So a lot of people look at the fourth industrial revolution, and they say, oh, my gosh, all the jobs are going to go. Robots are going to take all the jobs. And I'll say, okay, well, if we were to study history, study data, and study how companies engage workers, we'd find that that's not true. There will certainly be jobs displaced. And so the main prediction of the book, if you will, is that there will be no net job losses from robots and AI. But the important word in that sentence is net. There will be tremendous job losses, 10 to 15% of the labor force. We actually sit down and do the work. It's 10 to 15% of the labor force over a 20-year period. Jobs will be lost to automation, robots, AI, whatever you want to call it. Those jobs generally fall into categories that have a high degree of repetitive high-volume tasks within their functions. Okay, that's understandable. That is fits very well within history. What also fits very well within history and within data patterns and how companies engage workers is that job, more jobs will be created. There are three almost uninterrupted trends throughout the history of work. That is ever more jobs created, higher standards of living, people working fewer hours. Almost uninterrupted over 200 years. I have no reason to believe they will suddenly be interrupted now. So the net word is key because we will create new jobs, jobs in robotics and AI, sure, other jobs in the STEM fields, of course, data analytics, massive, no question. And jobs involving empathy and creativity and design and human interaction will all grow, no question. The problem and the challenge that we will face as a society is while we have these uninterrupted trends of more jobs and higher standards of living and people working fewer hours, there are difficult transitions when we think about these industrial revolutions. And those transitions lead to tremendous social and economic disruption. And it's because we have people that lose their jobs and we do a terrible job of getting them to the industries, the functions, and in some cases, the geographies that are growing and that have jobs. And those people that are left behind tend to very rightly be upset. And so the challenge of the fourth industrial revolution from my perspective is not technological unemployment, It's the exacerbation of existing gaps in society and what we can do to ensure that that retraining, that that reskilling happens as efficiently as possible. And so that's something that I think a lot about in terms of the fourth industrial revolution. 
I had the pleasure of joining the X Prize uh, on their advisory committee, and they've got a great prize going right now around rapid reskilling. How do we reskill workers rapidly in order to move them to the jobs that are growing? Because there are 8 million, there is a, actually it was a very recent record just published, I think the other day. Uh, we have 8 million job openings in the United States of America. Never had that many job openings. And yet unemployment ticked up over the last month. And so we have the jobs. We just need to get people moved into those jobs. Yeah, and I, I guess um, until we figure out how to reskill that 30-year-old coal miner, uh, you know, it, the, the social unrest and upheaval will, will continue, right? We've seen that happen. Very true. Yeah, so I think Very true. challenge here. But, you know, look, into, and let's dive in on that, on that statement, right? There are only about 80,000 coal miners in the United States of America at this point. And people will sit there and they'll say, oh, environmental policy took coal jobs or trade took coal jobs. No. We went from a million coal workers in the United States down to 80,000 because machines rip coal from the ground. And so it's automation. So to your point, those coal miners don't face trade issues, don't face environmental issues. They face automation issues. And how do we take those workers and move them into the jobs that are growing? That guy doesn't need to become a software programmer. He could if he wanted to. God bless but there are plenty of jobs for people that want to be reskilled, but in some cases move from a geographic standpoint. And so that is one of the very broad reasons that we have persistent uh, unemployment right now when we should be seeing a much bigger jobs uh, boom coming of this pandemic than we're seeing. You've, you've touched upon uh, the XPRIZE project, uh, the Future Work Prize. Uh, has has that gone forward? Have you seen some missions that are in, in, interesting? So there, well, there are two different things. One is the Future of Work Prize, which I did within my book, which we can touch on in a second. And the other is the X Prize itself. I took inspiration from the X Prize, but unfortunately, they did not give me ten million dollars to put out for my prize. I had to put the money up myself. Um, the rapid reskilling project, I am seeing tremendous things, n none of which, you know, we're, we're kind of capable of diving into just yet. But I'll tell you this, there's a company called Transfer VR. I happen to sit on the board of Transfer. The founder is a very dear friend and one of the most amazing entrepreneurs you'll ever meet, uh, Barani Rajakumar. And Barani and his team have built a VR training headset. And they are reducing by upwards of 90% the amount of time it takes to be ready to go in and be a diesel mechanic, to be on the manufacturing lines at Lockheed and Toyota and Mazda, to do a host of other jobs by just sitting at home and going through the training on your headset. And it is efficient. It is an easier modality. And it is fun. It is fun to do. And so they're not in the rapid reskilling program because they had a little bit of a conflict with one of the judges, me. Uh, but uh, that's the kind of technology that gets me very excited about the future and the ability for companies to rapidly reskill. And whether that reskilling is done as an individual, I go and buy that system on my own, which I, I could, whether it's done on the, in the educational infrastructure, whether it's in high schools or technical schools or community colleges or colleges, whether it's done by the government 
through workforce development programs or whether it's done by companies, unknown as to how that will play out. But what is exciting and what is known is that a lot of new technologies are coming on stream to make this easier. So I am hopeful in that regard. So tell, tell us about the future work for us. Well, I'll tell you this. Writing a book sucks. It's just, it's really not fun. It is very difficult. It took me seven years to write this book. And there were many days where I would be reading through the manuscript and just get so frustrated and just throw the thing into the air. The pages would go all over the office and I'd storm out and say to my assistant, I leave it. I will clean it up in the morning. I just don't want to deal with this right now. And so I got a call from my publisher about uh, two years, year and a half before we published the book. They said, you do not have enough pages for a book. This isn't a book. I was like, all right, well, what do I do? Because I don't have anything left to say. They said, oh, just say the same things over again. I was like, no, 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 no. I do not like to repeat. Uh, and so I came up with the idea, borrowed from the X Prize, of, you know what? I have had the pleasure of interviewing hundreds of men and women that are shaping the future of work. Heads of companies, heads of trade associations, legislators, investors in this space, heads of the largest staffing firms, heads of the largest labor unions. And I thought, well, I have my framework, history, data, how companies engage workers that gives me my kind of quote unquote crystal ball to look into. What if I asked them what the world of work looks like in 2040? What would they say? And so I asked them to write four or five pages on what they think the world of work looks like in 2040. And I got to tell you, man, amazing. I mean, we received 40 submissions of the people I asked. Many people said that they wanted to do it, but their companies wouldn't let them. Others actually couldn't hit the deadline because writing is really hard. And so uh, about 40 people made the deadline and we winnered it down to the top 20. And so those 20 are in chapter 10. I've written maybe 100 words in chapter 10, just setting them all up. And uh, it's in their own words, not edited for content. And in 2040, uh, each one of them will get a vote. God willing, they're all still with us. God willing, I'm still with us. And uh, one of them will be awarded the $10 million prize. That's fascinating. So Jeff, any parting words for our audience? I would just say, you know, be thoughtful. The world of work is incredibly complex. It is very broad and very wide moving. And so anytime you hear people talk about the future of work, ask to see their data, ask to really unpack it and don't just take anybody's uh, predictions at face value. Thank you, Jeff. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.